This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Was the 1980s the best decade for both Christian heavy metal and satanic music? To hell with the devil. Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of idiots. My name is Will, and joining me as always from his remote bunker is Ray. You got enough food in there, Ray? Uh, I think so. (laughs) I'm sorry, I cut you off from saying hi. Is Ray... It was fine the way it was. Oh, okay. I'm leaving both in now, so there you yeah, go. just leave it all in there. Okay, it's fine. Cool. Yeah, there's lots of food over here. Yep. We're good. Are you over there eating like uh, bird seed and stuff still? <laughs> like just like always. Yep. Just like always. You know, we do have our. You know, initially before anybody was panic buying toilet paper. You know, I said, all right, I see where this is going. So let's just get uh, like a two week supply of food of canned foods and put them on shelves in the basement. Just in mm-hmm. case we can't get to the store or we go to the store and everybody's coughing. We haven't dipped into that really very much yet. But as related to our show, our celebration of 1980s pop culture, I was able to leverage this to talk my wife into letting me buy a lot of things I haven't eaten probably since the 1980s that would otherwise be forbidden from our home. <laughs> like what? Like Cheetos? No, Cheetos we get away with generally. Ho-hos? <laughs> you go straight to the desserts. No, no, I'm talking about the substantial foods like Chef Boyardee ravioli, yeah. Oh, yeah, I eat those all the time. They're delicious. Oh, you eat it anyway? Not be- yeah. Pre- pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't eaten any yet, but I've got ravioli. I've got uh, the, uh, like, I've got SpaghettiOs, all these kinds of things that when I was a kid in the 80s, you know, and this will tie into what we're talking about here, in the, in the 80s, at some point, I was allowed to, you know, during elementary school, as young as fourth grade, it seems shocking now, to walk to school every day, and then I would walk home for lunch, cook myself, you know, Chef Boyardee on the stove, mm-hmm. and have that for lunch. You know, those were the great, those were the wonderful days. Yeah, there's nothing quite like just being there when you're a kid and using the, the stove or, you know, firing up the lawnmower. <laughs> <laughs> Not at the same time, I hope. What kind of meals were you having? That's a Saturday thing. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Did you have a gas mower at least when you were a kid? Yeah, we had a gas mower. It wasn't <laughs> self-propelled, but it was a yep. gas mower. And we had a mower that, as you you see these like, you know, in the old time movies or something, you push it, it spun like this cylinder of blades, and that's the only way the, gra- you know, the grass would get cut. Well, if you don't have a lawnmower with gas, how are you going to learn the lesson not to siphon it out with a short hose? Oh boy. I guess I don't have that lesson. That sounds like an important survival skill, too. Yeah, you also find out how gas tastes. <laughs> That'll learn you real quick how to siphon correctly. Yep. <laughs> I always wondered about that in the movies. You know, it's like, how do you know when to stop sucking? <laughs> I guess when the gas hits your lips. Yeah, when you have a big mouthful of gas, that's when you know you've, you're supposed to stop. <laughs> it's when you black out and just pass right out. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Hey, speaking of being kids in the 80s, we're going to talk about a period of time in the 1980s when everyone was afraid that Satan was living amongst us and 
whispering in people's ears to kidnap children and uh, perform occult rituals. And it was, these messages were hidden in everything from our games to our music. And today we're going to be focusing on the uh, satanic panic as it connects to heavy metal music. And a little bit later, we'll be speaking with the antithesis to that, Michael Sweet, the founding member and lead singer of the band Striper. But before we get to all of that, let's check up on 80s news. So in 80s news this week, I think a little bit of good news for you, maybe super exciting news, is that finally the cult classic BMX movie Rad is coming to Blu-ray and 4K. Yeah, it's about time. Right. I'm not sure, though, if it's going to improve the quality, not from going from VHS to that. I mean, there's something special about watching it on a VHS, but, mm-hmm. you know... VCRs are getting hard to come by, so. Yeah. And so you have one. Do you find that since you've used it now for years that, uh, does it, is the quality only enhanced by the fact that you watch tape over and over again? The head of the VCR is getting kind of dirty. It's not, maybe you're not maintaining it. So it's like a fine wine. Yeah. I actually have one that I, uh, I have two. So I have the one that I use and I have the backup one and they're both in really good shape. So I'm, I'm good for now. Right. But the tapes, they, some of those don't hold up very well. Especially if you wore, watched a certain scene, you know, so you see, uh, you got your Jamie Lee Curtis in Trading Places. Mm-hmm. You got your Kelly LeBrock at many moments in Weird Science. Those are certain moments that just started getting that extra staticky and the, sort of the top and bottoms, I don't know, they'll, would get those lines as if they had been played just more times than the rest of the films for some reason. <laughs> yeah, or if it was paused for a long time on there. Yes. Yeah, and I remember my dad would be, you know, like, you, you gotta let, you can't do that. It's just the head is spinning in the, I, I don't know, dad. There's a girl <laughs> on the movie. So, yeah, so Vinegar Syndrome and Utopia Distribution announced that Rad's uh, Blue, Blu-ray and 4K HD release on home video was is coming. It originally was intended to premiere as a 4K restoration at the canceled South by Southwest Festival, but now it will be released exclusively at vinegarsyndrome.com. Sometime you'll, you'll be able to get that. I don't know that we have it. Sometimes see, it's happening on May 22nd through May 25th, but you can pre-order it right now for $29.99. In other 80s news, hey, Ray, good news. I know you've been worried about finding a way to keep in shape while you're in the bunker there. Oh, yeah. We've just learned via CNN.com that Jane Fonda had posted her very first TikTok of herself doing her famous Jane Fonda workout. Yes, her 1982 best-selling VHS tape. Sold over 17 million copies of that thing. Wow. So I might have to track that down and give it a shot. On VHS. Yeah. So forget about the TikTok. Right. So I can stay in, I'll, I'll stay in shape that way. I want to see you in leg warmers. I'll have to make some. You're making, <laughs> you're making mask. I'll yeah. be making leg warmers. <laughs> oh, they're both critical to our safety, security, and sanity and health. Yeah, they're both critical to our health. My mom uh, had the Jane Fonda workout tape. Did you have somebody in your family that was a Jane Fonda workout fan? No. How did you stay in shape in the 1980s? Uh, I was rail thin and played sports and ran around a lot and didn't eat. Yeah, I I remember it being one of those things where, you know, my mom was really into it. It just seemed really embarrassing for me, you know, at the time to come across my mother in the living room laying down, you know, on her side with her legs kicking up in the air, watching a video of (laughs) some also, you know, middle-aged woman doing the same. It was very odd. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't have to go through that. That was a videotape that was pristine, never paused. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. Hey, in other 80s news, so this is a little bit out of our pop culture wheelhouse, but really important, I think, to establishing you know further credibility of what was accomplished in the 1980s and its continued endurance today. Uh, this comes from Newsweek.com. In, in the headline, I'll read it to you, and it says everything you need to know. Anti-parasite drug used since 1980s may stop coronavirus. See? Everything good coming from the 80s yet again. Right. So uh, according to this article, Australian researchers have published a study showing that a drug commonly used to treat parasite infections as early as the 1980s may also kill coronavirus in a laboratory setting in under 48 hours. The drug is called ivermectin, I'm going to say. I'm not a doctor. But it's, again, it's one of those things that in the lab, it's... Things are very promising. Um, we're not going to know uh, for a while yet uh, whether or not it's something that can be used. But as I mentioned, it was been used since the 1980s to treat head lice, scabies, and several other infections caused by parasites. So you got 80s kids to thank for that too, people. Yeah, if we hadn't got all that head lice and, and ticks <laughs> and everything else, you wouldn't have this opportunity. So in other 80s news, and this comes from metalinjection.net, we've got video proof of Vince Neal, quote, working out like a madman for the Motley Crue Summer Stadium Tour. If you've gotten a look at Vince Neal in recent days, he's not looking how he did in the 1980s. Again, the 1980s was better for his abs. Yeah, he looks like I'm going to look coming out of quarantine. <laughs> it's all that, uh, what was it, uh, what was those kicks you just mentioned? Ho-hos. Yeah, it's all the ho-hos, man. Got to lay off the ho-hos. You can, the, yeah. Chef Boyardee, okay. Yeah, the, the, the worst part about that story, though, is, is that I saw another one that said this tour might get canceled now. Right. So, yeah, with everything going on, we don't know if the tour is going to continue or not, which would be a terrible shame. Maybe it'll just get delayed because they were returning on tour with Def Leppard, Poison, and Joan Jett. And I know you were all set to see them when they came to Cleveland, and I wanted to go there with you because this is an amazing lineup. Yeah, this is probably the last time you'll get to see Motley Crue play. If they cancel this tour, it's probably done. Well, fingers crossed. But even though the whether the tour is may you know whether it's going to happen or not is uh, still up in the air, it hasn't stopped Vince Neil from preparing. So uh, a video surfaced from his let's say blabbermouth reports that Vince Vince's longtime girlfriend celebrity makeup artist and beauty educator Rain Hanna. Doesn't that sound like someone who Vince Neil would be dating? Rain Hanna. Well, he can't afford to have a fourth or fifth wife, so he's just <laughs> dating now. That's it. Finally, it took that long. I swearing off marriage again. Uh, she posted a brief boomerang video. I don't even know what that is. In which, uh, in, in their what probably is their home gym, saying that Vince is putting lots of hours getting ready for the big tour. And it's just a really short video. You see her standing, you know, sort of in the forefront, looking like she's out of a Jane Fonda workout video. And the camera quickly pans over to, you see Vince at some machine or something, just, I don't know, pumping iron real quickly. And then it pans back to her. It's like a 10 second video or something. Uh, in the video, you can tell all the equipment looks like they just built that gym. Yeah. But it's, I think they've had that gym for 10 or 15 years and they've just <laughs> never been in it before. <laughs> it's squeaky clean. Chrome is all shiny, no dust on it. <laughs> so, hey, as far as I know, that's 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. So a little bit later, we're going to be speaking with Michael Sweet. But before that, you and I are going to talk about satanic panic in the 1980s with regard to heavy metal music. Um, and what I think is interesting about the satanic panic just broadly is how many different things we loved as kids in the 1980s it touched upon. So I think when we talk about D&D, we can talk about satanic panic. There's a video game episode of satanic panic, movies, 
uh, television shows, all separate topics. But today we're going to be focusing on the music. Do you remember feeling uh, or, or uh, you know, being aware of the satanic panic in the 1980s? Oh, yeah. Everybody was aware of the, the satanic panic because it created a whole new way to find good music. And um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the black and white just, label. Yeah, you just found the label. I mean, if it came down to two albums, whichever one had the label was the one you were buying. I don't remember, and I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, but I don't remember if, now look, again, you and I, we have, a, there's a Venn diagram where we have a lot of overlapping experiences and philosophies, et cetera. And then, you know, it's the things that we don't overlap that make us uh, interesting friends. So I don't think I probably went out of my way to purchase a record with a label <laughs> like that. For me, it was probably the opposite. Like, I'm too young to hear this. But um, did you ever run into a problem trying to get a record at a store where uh, maybe you or maybe you were old enough by then that you could get it? No, I was buying, let's see, that those stickers came out mid-80s. Yeah, I mean, the committee was in 85. And, yeah, um, so yeah, you no, know, I absolutely had zero problems buying any album anywhere from any store with that label on it ever. Yeah. So they weren't doing the working the way they were supposed to, maybe helping stores keep uh, these certain records out of the hands of children. As far as they were concerned, it was like a big giant poster in the window saying, this is the album the kids want. Mm. And all the kids would just come in and buy those up. Yeah. You almost had to drop an F-bomb on an album in the 80s if you were a metal band just to get the sticker. Yeah, and some of the folks that I came across when researching this episode, you know, played into the satanic panic to sell records. Um, so taking a, a step back, I guess, you know, so we were aware of the impact of it, like you're saying, labels. I remember my mother being scared of certain things, you know, and me as a child, again, we're, we're, you and I are very different as adults and certainly as children, me being scared of certain things because of this satanic panic and buying into it. But what I didn't know because we were kids was that a lot of it uh, began at the very beginning of the 80s and maybe even as far as back as the 70s or earlier. Well, I guess a couple important things that come into play. One, the Church of Satan was uh, a church that was established in the 1960s by Anton LaVey. And it, no one really seemed to care about it as much as they did ultimately in the 1980s for reasons we'll talk about. I remember the 1980s being aware of the Church of Satan and thinking it was really cool uh, I think I had a copy of the Bible, even, um, of the Church of Satan. And I think the things that I found interesting were about it was that it wasn't so much that he was uh, worshiping Satan so much as he, you know, they, they stood for, as I recall, uh, greater freedoms than maybe they, you know, perceived other religions to stand for, or even our own, you know, society. Anyway, they're an organization that began in the 60s and wasn't really truly maligned to the 80s. Do you remember being aware of Anton LaVey in the 80s? Uh, yeah, because... Uh Obviously, I like Black Sabbath. Right. The whole satanic thing, LeVay, Crowley, all that was pretty much standard operating procedure for anybody who was getting into heavy metal. Yeah, and, and there were some heavy, heavy metal bands that were members of the Church of Satan. Uh, whether it was a gimmick or not, I, I'm not sure. But yeah, so anybody who was a fan of heavy metal certainly would be aware of them. But then the thing that I, don't, I didn't know at all about was this book that came out in 1980, Michelle Remembers. It was a book by uh, a psychiatrist, Lawrence Pazder, and his psych psychiatric patient, Michelle Smith. And in it, she, she, she claims, and he claims, that through uh, these therapy sessions, she had repressed memories coming forward. So 30 years after, roughly 30 years after she had these experiences in the 50s, she starts remembering as a child having been part of these satanic rituals that her father, I believe, had essentially you know volunteered or donated her as, I think, beginning as young as five years old to this, uh, this group. And in early editions of the book, it mentioned specifically the Church of Satan as being one of these organizations that were, you know, permitting these uh, or 
conducting these rituals with young children, including her. I don't know. Should I should I mention right now that it turns out this is a bunch of uh, yeah, it's a bunch of hooky pooky. Yeah, they made the whole thing up, but it stirred up a, a hornet's nest of trouble for a lot of daycares. Yes, where they used this technique to basically convince the kids that something bad had happened to them. Right. Uh, what is that? Uh, the, Mc, the McMartin yeah. the McMartin Preschool. Right. That's so, a, the most famous one that I can think of. Right. And these are excellent bookends to this whole satanic panic during the 80s, because in 1980, you have this book, Michelle Remembers, where a young girl's claiming that, or a woman, an adult's claiming that as a child, these terrible things happened to her in the hands of different uh, satanic cults, including the Church of Satan. I should mention the Church of Satan was later edited out of future editions of the book after the Church of Satan sued them, or threatened to sue them even. And then later, 10 years later, in the McMartin trial, like you're saying, it concludes in 1990. I believe it begins in like 84 or 85. It lasts for a long time, about six years. At the end of that trial, the book is essentially debunked, and even this idea that children in preschools were being, were part of satanic rituals had been debunked by then. So these are Interesting bookends, you know, part of the same story. The beginning and the beginning and the end of the satanic panic. Yeah, this begins to, now this begins to snowball from here as the panic begins to spread. So, yeah, so now they're looking at everything else. And, and, the, and part of it is, so even beginning in the 70s, you know, we had these films that already laid some of the groundwork for fearing uh, the occult. You know, you had huge successes with The Exorcist at the beginning of the 70s and, you know, The Omen different movies about demonic possession and that uh, made Satan an actual, you know, character living and walking among us that by the time the 1980s and its book rolls around, it just sort of plays upon the fears that folks had in fiction because now they're saying that these things are real, which again, they're not. But So yeah, so folks are mindful of this. So uh, we could touch upon some of the examples I think that led to ultimately what you're talking about, these these labels. Mm-hmm. Let's do that. One, and I should mention a bunch of these, uh, so two sources for me to, uh, to for these um Stories and organizing my thoughts around this is an article uh, I found at uh, something called HeavyBlogIsHeavy.com, Satanic Panic, America's War on Heavy Metal in the 1980s. That's from, a, from a 2016 by a gentleman named Kieran Fisher. And a really cool book that I think we'll use many times as a reference, again, as we have different episodes that maybe touch upon these stories. Uh, but the book is Satanic Panic, Pop Culture in the 1980s. I also highly recommend that one. Uh, in the summer of 1984... There was a 17-year-old drug dealer and self-professed Satanist, Ricky Casso. Now he, uh, you know, again, some of these, these stories are, are hard to hear, but because these stories are real, unlike Michelle remembers, um, but he murders his friend, Gary Lawers, uh, in the woods of Newport, New York, while he's high on mescaline. On the day he's arrested, he's wearing an ACDC shirt. So immediately the associations, you know, again, going back to Michelle remembers, folks start tying the fact that he's into heavy metal with the fact that he, you know, he must have, that he murdered, they clearly murdered this uh, person. It, it did turn out that this murderer, this horrible person was in fact a fan of Ozzy Osbourne and Judas Priest. So again, just, you know, this was one of those beginning moments where folks started saying, hey, if you're into the one thing, it's going to lead you to, to, to do the other. Yep. Yep. That's pretty much how they tied it together. They used my A equals B equals C theory, but they used it wrong. Yeah. Uh, another similar story where, you know, the, again, the, the fear that heavy metal was somehow inducing young people to, or, you know, even adults to do these horrific acts was in 1985 when a 20 year old uh, James Vance 
tried to sue Judas Priest because after a night of partying one night, Vance and his friend go to a local playground and shoot themselves. Now, his friend doesn't survive, but Vance does, and he goes on to file a lawsuit against Judas Priest, claiming that the subliminal messaging in their stained glass album is what drove him to the act. Yeah, if you're uh, interested in, in hearing it, you'll need the album, yep. and you'll need to go to the cover of Spooky Tooth, uh, Better By You, Better Than Me. That is the song. I'm not familiar with it, so I don't know, you know. Yeah, they played it in the court, and uh, it proved that uh, it was not really anything worth, you know, listening to. But like I said, if you want to check it out, that's the song, that's the album, Stained Class. Yeah, and even though the label escaped any uh, liability, and like you're saying, even though they played in court, this still wasn't enough to convince parents and these folks that were, you know, building these campaigns against uh, heavy metal— convinced them that there weren't these subliminal messages promoting homicide and suicide and devil worship and, and you know, otherwise having demons possess their, their children. So, sure, so around this time is when uh, a committee, and this is 1985, a committee that's uh, ultimately known as the Parents Music Resource Center, which is headed by Tipper Gore, who at the time was married to then Congressman and future Vice President Al Gore, creates a list of songs uh, dubbed the Filthy 15, which was to serve as a, a template uh, for proposed legislation regarding how albums should be rated, suggesting that if they had certain themes, then they should have certain warnings. And of the 15 songs, nine of those were metal songs. Yeah, she had a real problem with heavy metal. And yeah, and, and Al Gore tells a story that uh, the reason why this is, the reason why she was even motivated to create this committee actually goes back to their daughter. Their daughter was listening to an album and she said, you know, what do these certain words mean? I don't know what these words mean. Tipper Gore looked into, you know, oh, let me figure out what these words are. Oh, no, this is what you're listening to. Something needs to be done. The album turns out it was Purple Rain, the particular song that was uh, of concern. Well, you know what? Hey, hang on. Let's play a game here. So are you, how familiar are you with the Filthy 15? I, I could probably get a lot of them, right? Okay, so what I'm going to do is I've got five examples of groups that are on the Filthy 15. Mm-hmm. I'm going to name two songs. One of their songs is on the Filthy 15. The other one isn't. See if you can pick which one's on the Filthy 15. Let's do it. Okay. So here we go. ACDC is the song Highway to Hell or Let Me Put My Love Into You on the list. It's definitely Let Me Put My Love Into You. Oh, why do you say definitely? You're right. Because it's sexual in nature. Right. And and, and we're going to see something really quick. Uh, interesting that created a sort of interesting paradox about the uh, list here. Okay. Twisted Sister. We're not going to take it or burn in hell. Uh, we're not going to take it. Yeah, well, right. Again, so hang, hang on. We've got two songs that uh, mention hell, and they're not on the list when... Yeah. This was the list I took to the store to find the album. <laughs> That's a shopping list. <laughs> this is a shopping list. <laughs> hey, 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 uh, clerk, record store clerk, can you tell me where I can find any of these songs? Yeah, we used to, we used to have a store called Perry's Rock Pile, and you would just take your list in there. Mm-hmm. Go, here. Where are these albums located, sir? And he'd, he'd go find them for you. <laughs> He's like, let me see. All right. You're going to look for the ones with the labels. All right. So here we go. Here's, here's a few more here. Madonna's Like a Virgin or Dress You Up. Uh, I'm going to go Dress You Up. Yes. Again. Well, th- now that one's even more confusing to me. So yeah, Dress You Up was a, and they, ultimately this group, they categorized what the, 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 the topic or the theme was. They had a rating system to say what the area of, you know, sensitivity or concern was. And for Dress You Up, it was sex. 
but like a virgin's not on the filthy 15. I would think that'd be a more, you know, clear one as, as the others I thought would make the list and maybe not these others. Mm, like a virgin is more of an innuendo. It's not just straight out dirty. Well, how is, you know, I guess I don't know the lyrics dress you up in my love all over your body. Hmm. Maybe it's that part. I don't know. It's hard to understand what, you know, upsets people about music. All right. How about Cindy Lauper? Girls just want to have fun or Shebop. Shebop. Yeah. Do you know why? I guess because it sounds dirty. Well, apparently that's a slang for uh, female masturbation. Well, there you go. Apparently Tipper knew that. So. <laughs> <laughs> she saw that. She's like, oh, no, my secret is out. I know. I don't know if that's true. Okay, it's not true. All right, and so leading up to, I said, the finally, the song on Purple Rain, for which Tipper's daughter had some questions, was it either Raspberry Beret or Darling Nikki? It's Darling Nikki? Yeah. Do you remember the word? Or can you guess what the word is? You remember that song? Not off the top of my head. Yeah, okay. That would be the one that I said, you can ignore it. I, I scratch this one off the list for you. <laughs> oh, no, you're not a Prince fan. Well, not I'm that not that one a, anyway. I, I am. As yeah. a, I like his guitar playing. Yeah. So the, the word was masturbation. Oh, yeah. That would make sense. So and among the um, songs that are on here, you know, clearly this list confounded a lot of people at the time and since how they came up with this. And, you know, it even confounded some of the groups that were targeted on here. For example, the group Venom, which was actually a UK-based band, they didn't even find out till years later that they were on this list, and they found it quite hilarious. But they also said something to the effect that if you're looking for a, a song, a Venom song, to put on a list, it wouldn't be Possessed. They're, we've done far worse songs that are terrible that should be on there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're basically the... Uh the Godfathers of black metal, basically. Yeah, and they were a group that was known for leaning into this idea that folks were afraid of devil worship. They're like, all right, if that's selling records, all right, we'll make a work record. I don't remember what it was called, but literally it's like, we love the devil. Buy this record, yeah. buy this album. <laughs> but you got Wasp on there too. They got Animal. Animal, yes, right. Yeah, so in many of the songs on here, maybe this is interesting because we're talking about how this is born out of the satanic panic. You've got these kids murdering other people. I say kids. Adults, they're adults, they're late teens. So, you know, leads ultimately to this list in part because, but really the fear of this, that creates this list is uh, the word masturbation leads Tipper Gore, inspires her. And so many of the songs, even though nine of them out of the 15 are metal, most of them just looking quickly here are, are the concerning area was sex or sex and or masturbation. So maybe they were really worried about sex when they created this list. Yes, that's the prime target for the albums. One of the interesting things about the hearings during the, you know, Filthy 15 was some of the folks that came and spoke before Congress, including Alice Cooper and Dee Snyder. And by all accounts, people were blown away. And I, I kind of remember this even myself because I, I loved Twisted Sister. How Dee Snyder appearing before Congress in all of his makeup, you know, and his hair teased out and everything was super intelligent and serious and calm, you know, not screaming uh, and made, mm -hmm. made an excellent point. It seemed like the Congress didn't know what to make of it. And even, you know, fans, I was surprised. I bought into the characters that they, you know, they portray and uh, was taken aback. So folks, yeah, folks came there to, to defend the music as we just make music. Yeah, for some reason, he didn't want the sticker on his album, which makes no sense. Yeah, and I guess you can't even say that songs like uh, Burn in Hell or uh, Be, Be Cruel to Your School, which, you know, ultimately the video was, was banned, that he's necessarily aiming it for children, so... I, I just don't get it. You didn't see a lot of the other rock stars were at home high-fiving and drinking beers and having a party like, we're getting a sticker. <laughs> Sales are going to go through the roof. Yeah, yeah ultimately. Yeah, now I, I think I think when, uh, you know, uh, West Coast rap started uh, really becoming more mainstream, I think that was something that was coveted. Yeah, could you imagine a rap album 
even selling one copy if it didn't have that on it. Right. In the 80s, you know, this this is a whole other episode, but in the 80s, hip-hop, certainly, you know, I think of hip-hop as something different than ultimately we hear as rap and gangster rap. But certainly, yeah, during that era, towards the late 80s, early 90s, no, most of the most popular records definitely had that sticker on them. Eventually, the movies start to have themes uh, around uh, the PMRC. Right. So you have Trick or Treat comes out about the character Sammy Kerr, who's a gigantic rock star and his biggest fan loves him. Right. But what they do is is they have Gene Simmons in the movie Mm -hmm. playing a a DJ, and then they have Ozzy Osbourne playing this anti-heavy metal character. Right. (laughs) So it's kind of like sticking it to the PMRC because he's all talking about how these are these albums are atrocious. And but Sammy comes back from the dead, and you know you got the kid uh, played by uh, Mark Price who was Skippy. Yeah. And um. Basically, he just helps him kill people. Yeah. So it's a perfect, like, take on the whole satanic panic thing. Yeah. But then you also have The Gate, which came out in the 80s. Right. Where the kids use the album to open a portal to hell, basically. Right, right. And then they they spend the whole movie trying to close it. Yeah. So eventually the backwards record thing played very well with the satanic panic in movies for the 80s. You got a couple other low-budget ones. Sure. Like... uh, you got hard rock zombies, right? You got black roses, and there's there's a couple of yeah. others, but trick or treat and the gate are the two ones that I remember is really having that connection to the records. Yeah, and this coincides with the boom of horror movies during the 1980s that we talked about on prior episodes. That films, you know, horror movies now are satirizing really the fears and taking advantage of the fears. They're not believing it. These films are not made to say, "Here's you really need to be worried about kids doing these things." They're taking advantage of the fact that parents and these organizations are afraid of it and making films that, you know, ultimately will entertain kids as a tongue-in-cheek kind of laugh uh, at at what was a real fear by these older folks. Yeah, it was a lot of fun when you're going to see a movie and everybody's like, don't go see that. You know, you're going to be a devil worshiper when you come out of the theater. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess we can wrap up at this point is that, you know, and this ties to our guest that we're going to be talking to in just a minute here, Mike, Michael Sweet of Striper, is that... You know, a lot of some of these folks, right? We can say, uh, I know Oz, I told this story many times. You've heard me say it many times, but in brief, Ozzy Osbourne, I think you've got some other folks you could back me up. What they did on stage, what they did to ultimately become successful and popular was based in part on shtick. Uh, a lot of them loved the uh, Hammer horror films of the, uh, you know, 60s and 70s, right? And so their, their, their look, the themes of their music, you know, their concerts were, were grounded in these films. And in that sense, you know, they, they weren't necessarily card-carrying. And many of them, they were not card-carrying Satan worshipers and weren't even, you know, other than including the word talking about the devil, it wasn't about devil worship. So in that sense, it wasn't genuine. And these connections were made, you know, again, by some kids and some fans, but ultimately by these groups. And I think it's interesting, I was going to say that Michael Sweet, who is, as you'll learn, and if you don't know already, and you know this much about Striper, is actually a Christian rock band who sincerely holds their Christian beliefs that they, you know, were the antithesis to this, you know, heavy metal uh, satanic panic, but they still got caught up in being, uh, you know, criticized for being phonies and not really believing what they were singing. And even by some uh, Christian organizations like that of Jimmy Swaggart, of saying that they too were actually trying to trick people into worshiping the devil. And with that, no, hey, we can we can do no better than to hear straight from the source regarding all these. So in just a moment, we'll be right back with our guest, Michael Sweet.
Our guest today is the lead singer, a guitarist, and co-founder of the 1980s Christian heavy metal band Striper. While their lyrics may have been antithetical to those of their contemporaries, the band rocked as hard as any other in the decade. In fact, in 1986, their third studio album, To Hell with the Devil, became the first Christian metal album to achieve platinum status. And our guest has kept busy since those early successes. This fall, he released his 10th solo album, simply named 10, and is already busy working on his next. Add to that several upcoming tour dates and a new Striper album, and our guest is working harder than he was during the 1980s. You can learn more about him in his 2014 book, Honestly, My Life and Striper Revealed. And now, you can request a private video message from our guest for yourself or another fan on Cameo.com. Please welcome to the show, Michael Sweet. Hey, Michael, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Hey, guys. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm having my first cup of coffee, waking up. <laughs> uh, and it's like 11.15 or 11.10 or something like that. So I'm feeling uh, I'm feeling a little off here. Yeah. Uh, staying up real late and sleeping in real late. But you know what? Uh, we're healthy. I'm, uh, I'm recording, getting vocals done. Uh, doing a lot of cool stuff here to keep myself active at the house. I feel like you just described the life of a rock star, staying up late, waking up late, recording vocals. Yeah, I probably did. Most rock stars. I'm not your typical rock star. I don't Mm -hmm. usually stay up super late. Like my late night for me is, is midnight. Yeah. That's, that's late, you know, or even, even 11. I'm like, Oh man, I'm I'm ready for bed. And then I get up, I usually get up at, you know, no later than 8 a.m. I'm not one of those guys that stays up till 3 in the morning and sleeps till noon, but, you know, I used to be, for sure. When do you find yourself to be most productive these days? There's a surge. I mean, in the morning, I'm not so productive. I'm a slow-to-start slow kind of guy. Um, but once I start becoming productive, say, around maybe 11 or noon, from noon to, say, 8 p.m. in the evening, that's when I get a lot of stuff done in regard to writing and that sort of thing. You know, yeah. I eat a lot. I'm very productive in eating after 8 p.m. <laughs> in, in your book, honestly, you dispel a lot of myths, I think, about Striper, generally about yourself. What do you think is the biggest misconception about Striper? Well, I mean, there's probably quite a few. The biggest one, I think, is people who aren't involved or interested in quote unquote Christian music or Christians uh, think that there's no way possible for us to be able to, to rock and, and, and be a decent band. Right. I see those comments all the time. Oh, they, yeah. they're Christians. They must suck, you know? And it's that mentality, which is really interesting to me, but you know, we work hard at, at proving those people wrong. Uh, and we just basically say, well, okay, really well, come see us live. And we don't. We won't have to say another word because then you'll you'll understand that we're a rock band, and we're a rock band that works hard at being tight, being professional. You know, writing good songs, producing good songs, having having a great crew that makes us sound and look good. I mean, it's it's a rock show, and it's a good rock show, uh, and nothing to do with Christianity or not. It's just you know we're a rock band, but at the same time we go out there and we present a strong message, 
And it's kind of like going to church. But I think that's the most, the biggest misconception about the band is that we suck. <laughs> <laughs> and and the people the people that still say we suck even after they've seen us or heard us, yep. they're either blind or deaf. <laughs> yeah, we got something else going on. It's, it's it's about them. Yeah, at that point, right? Um, well, yeah, absolutely. And, and and you know, to that point about the music, uh, I thought it was interesting to learn in your uh, again. I learned much much. Uh, much like, you know, we're talking about misconceptions. I, I will admit, I had a lot of misconceptions about Striper. Certainly I was a fan of the music, but I made a lot of assumptions myself. Um, sure. But what was, so and so many interesting things come out of this book. And to your point about the music, I thought it was fascinating to learn that your first record deal came from a label that may not have realized you were a Christian rock band. Yeah, they, they certainly didn't realize it to the degree that we were or extent that we were, they didn't, uh, you know, they didn't really know about, you know, how serious we were about our message and our faith. And when we presented the lyrics to them, that's when they realized like, Oh, whoa, wait a minute here, <laughs> which is, which is really crazy because they saw us, we did a showcase for them and they, we performed live and they saw and heard us live. So I don't know how you can you can uh, misinterpret. You know, Jesus is the way. To, you know, I, I'm not getting it. Uh, even if we were really loud and it was distorted and everything, you'd still hear with uh, with clarity what we were saying in, in parts of our songs. So uh, it, we've always been very clear and very bold, lyrically speaking. So, but yeah, that was the case, and they actually considered uh, letting us go and not taking us on because of that. But ultimately did, and obviously led to one of the stepping stones in your, your success. But but sticking with the music, you know, uh, it always fascinates me how music, you know, itself is, music itself is spiritual, right? I mean, music is uh, something that connects with people on a subconscious level, on a, an emotional level. I really, I tried to learn about more about how music hits people. And because for, for me, most, almost every, any genre of music will move me, except country music doesn't yep. really, I don't really connect with country very much. But it's it's something in us, and so obviously something moved those uh, folks there. Whether they saw you know a trend and they knew you had that sound, or but thinking about your concerts around the world and how many times you were surprised by folks who either English was a second language or Christianity was a wasn't a first you know the most popular religion in their country would still love your music. What does that say about? music generally, or, or Striper in particular, that it transcends in that way? Well, I think because there's two sides to music, obviously. There's there's the uh, the music itself that attracts people, the melody, the riff, the chord, whatever it is, uh, the sound of a vocal, something that makes your ears perk up and go, ooh, what's that? And then there's the, the message, the lyrics, lyrical side, that not all people listen to or care about, but many people do. You know, some people are, are more drawn to the lyrics than they are the music and vice versa. So it's it's such a powerful tool. And when you combine the two, it's just the most powerful tool on the planet Earth because it is the one thing that we all have in common. Yep. We all we all love music, different types of music. But there's not one person on the planet Earth that doesn't like music. Yep. We all like we all like music. So it does move us. It does touch us deeply, emotionally. And it's so powerful and it, it sets up our lives. It tells the story of our lives because we have 
you know, different points of our lives where there's a particular band or a particular song that really left an impression on us. And with that uh, goes and comes and goes along with memories, you know, and those memories are tied to it so, so deeply and so strongly. Yep. So, you know, it's just so powerful. You can look back right on in your high school uh, on your high school days and say, "Oh yeah, oh my gosh, Arnold Speedwagon." Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't fight this feeling anymore. I remember dancing to that song. You know, there's all these memories that go along with those songs and those bands, so it makes it even more powerful. Yeah, we often talk about that on the show here. Uh, you know, of having a certain song associated with a certain girl. You know, or yeah, a certain yeah. car ride, or yeah, um, absolutely. Or, or at the beach, you know, I remember going to the beach a lot. And uh, the minute I think about going to the beach as a, as a teenager, I think about Van Halen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Because that's, that's all we listened to on the beach was Van Halen. I remember hearing Afternoon Delight on the way to a drive-in movie with my parents. I think that was the yeah. first time I heard it. Yeah, it's, it's powerful stuff. Well, it is powerful. Another thing that I learned, again, reading uh, your book, Honestly, My, my Life and Striper Revealed, is that there's, you know, not only were some myths dispelled for me, but there's been a number of paradoxes in your life. And some of them are, you know, the seeming inconsistency between what we think of as heavy metal music in the 80s and, and the Christian lifestyle. So even the idea that you cut your teeth on the Sunset Strip, which, you know, might be the yep. you know epitome of <laughs> anti-Christian values. And early on, you know, folks might not even realize that your lyrics weren't as explicit as they became. To, you know, in, in expressing your faith, but at some point you made you the group made a conscious decision that this is who we are. Well, there's a lot to that. Yeah, a lot to that. I mean, so we became Christians when I was 12 years old. Right. Uh, it, I was involved in music prior to that. Believe it or not, uh, my dad was teaching me guitar and uh, playing talent shows, and grew up in a musical family. So I was involved in music from day one. Right. Then at the age of 12, became a Christian, got involved in church, and became a Christian through Jimmy Swagger. I got uh, less and less interested in church, and by the time I was 13-ish, uh, stopped going to church and started really getting involved in playing clubs, backyard parties and stuff when I was 14, 15 years old. And then from 15 to 20, it was all Sunset Strip, uh, drinking, smoking, you know, typical rock, uh, uh, rock and roll lifestyle. <clears throat> and oddly enough, when I was on the Strip, standing out in front of these clubs, sometimes uh, – uh, organizations, Christian organizations would uh, walk by and come up to me and, and you know, uh, preach to me. And here I am standing there listening to this as I'm smoking a cigarette or what have you, <laughs> uh, saying to myself inside, yeah, 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 I know this. I know this is true. <laughs> yeah. But on the outside going, uh, man, I got to get back in and, and play my set. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that went on for years, almost like a denial and running from God. And then I, at the age of 20 is when I rededicated my life. And when we, as uh, Rock's regime, before we became Straper, we all decided to devote the band to God. All of us, all four of us. And we all have a similar story. We all grew yeah. up in Christian families and walked away from God and came back to God. So I'm, I'm not, I was raised Catholic, which is, you know, like the casual Friday of, of Christianity, I think, you know. I think most Pentecostals, Baptists would view Catholicism as a more sort of laid back version of Christianity. But I don't practice now. I haven't been, I wouldn't say I'm religious for many years now certainly spiritual and believe in, you know, something higher. I, I can't put right. my finger on it, but I think it's fascinating that, you know, whether, whether you're Christian or, or some other religion or, or not religious or, or just spiritual generally, to see right. in your life the different things that happened over the course of your life that you attribute to God come into place. It's sort of undeniable, these, you know, what other folks might say as a coincidence, you know, 
happened yep. to be your good fortune, you know, including the fact that, you know, you would, of course, your brother, you grew up together, but that the other band members would be these folks that had these similar experiences and backgrounds and, you know, would come together. It's just amazing. Well, we just, we saw also through that, uh, you know, five year, six year period from 13 to, to 20. So that's maybe a seven, seven year period ish. We saw all the signs you know, so I, 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 I did a lot in that, in that period. I, I grew up fast. I, I was arrested, uh, you know, uh, and I talk about that in the book. Yeah. It took a lot of wrong turns and made a lot of bad choices. And it did my share of drinking and partying and all that stuff and kind of got it out of my system. And then a light went on when I was 20, we had a friend come and, uh, share with us about about God and what God would do if we devoted the band. And we saw the extreme difference in him from who he was to who he, uh, you know, all of a sudden became standing before us. And we thought, wow, if God could do miracles in this guy's life, he could do it in our lives. And we just decided to take a different path at an early age. And our other friends continued down the path they were on, drinking and drugging and doing all that stuff. And, you know, I, I, I have no regrets. I don't look back and think, oh, man, I wish I had continued down uh, the path of drinking and smoking and doing drugs. Man, <laughs> I'd be I'd be I'd be a lot better off. now. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, there's no regrets. And, and we, we were just call it luck, call it whatever you want to call it, uh, being blessed or or what have you. I, I look at it as God reached down and said, hey. I'm going to save you guys and I'm going to, I'm going to put you on a different path here. Yeah. And in and, and my whole life, I've been looking up saying, why us? Again, I'm not, I don't identify with particular religion. I know there's something bigger going on. I've seen too many and I've witnessed too many, you know, what other folks would dismiss as, you know, just again, happenstances is something else going on. But for you, obviously as a Christian, you, you, there's one particular God, uh, you know, and there's obviously there's uh, uh everything that follows with that in Christianity. And um, I, I guess the thing for me is, and I don't understand, and I wish I could, is making that leap. Like, um, you know, to, to be able to, and maybe it's because I'm ultimately a cynical or skeptical person, that it's hard for me to, to I guess, accept that some, you know, men thousands of years ago really knew or understand who the one true God was and revealed it, and, and that being... Christ versus some of the other many religions out there that have similar, if not older stories. How is it that to you, you feel that your faith, I guess, called you to that religion, that you feel so confident about that? Well, again, I don't view it as a religion. Okay, sorry. No, no, no. That's a big difference. I mean, I grew up going to Baptist churches, and I've gone to Catholic churches, and I've gone to Pentecostal churches. I've gone gone to many different uh, types of churches, Lutheran. Um, and I've kind of seen it all and uh, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of religion, but I am a fan of a one-on, uh, one-on-one personal relationship with, with God. And that's, that's my relationship with God. Like, uh, you know, it might shock some people to hear Michael Sweet say that he doesn't go to church very often. Right. I, I go to church when I can, yeah. but there's a lot of times I can't go to church. Uh, but that's not, that's not what it's about. It's not about a building. It's about a, a one-on-one wherever you are a relationship with God. If you're at the market, you want to say a prayer, say a prayer. You know, you don't have to say, oh, well, you know what? I'll swing by the church in an hour and I'll say a prayer. <laughs> right, then it counts. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, it, that, that's not what it's about to me. You know, I have read, I have studied, I have seen stories 
uh, about Christ, about God, about, you know, the, the God that I believe in. And uh, it makes me believe in him even more, you know, and I don't I don't doubt my faith. I don't question it. I don't I'm not a guy. I'm cynical, too, but I'm not a guy that says, well, you know what? I'm going to look into this even deeper because I've, I've got some big questions that God can't answer. I mean, there's a lot of questions I have. Why did my wife die? That, that's that's enough to turn me away from God right there, right? right? Yeah. But it didn't. It made my, my relationship deeper and stronger with God because I believe that Kyle's in a better place, and, and she had a deep faith as well. And then anybody that's lost someone or anybody that's gone through something tragic, I mean, it's, it's, it's real easy in those, in those situations to turn your back on God. Right. You know, uh, but I just have a deep faith and, and, you know, I encourage the guys in the band, they encourage me, uh, we write and sing about it. We just devoted our lives uh, to God and it just, it helps us to, to deepen our faith. You know, those seeds and those roots take, take, uh, the tree in our, in my life takes root even deeper with each situation that I come in contact with that I see that I experience going to Jakarta and, Performing to you know five six seven thousand Muslims right. and and talking about God and and you know it, it's like those are the things that deepen my faith. Yeah, and I, I guess I realize as you say it that's you're describing my experience. I think the only distinction is is I wouldn't say it was Christ because I don't have that relationship, but I know it's something you know, and I yeah. know it's something bigger than yeah. me and bigger than all of us. Yeah, uh, and so so I guess I do have faith. I guess what the only distinction I'm maybe I so I do understand it. It's just you know a, a linguistic Absolutely. or uh, you know difference or um, uh, I I understand and and that's that's good. That's not a bad thing if you're questioning something or if you're a little more skeptical than others. That's not a bad thing. But you know I can assure you that it's it is God, and you know maybe maybe someday you'll you'll agree with that. Maybe not. Yeah. I don't know. It, it, it sounds to me like it's going to take something in particular, some some situation, some story, something so powerful to make you go, "Wow, okay, yeah. that's it." <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. So back back in the eighties, you know, in, in considering you know your strong faith, I think another thing that folks might want to dismiss Striper as, uh, and certainly, obviously, I don't want to make it sound like uh, I'm dismissing Striper. That Striper doesn't have its legions of fans because it does. But this idea that, and, and I want to talk about in a little bit how some of your biggest critics came from, you know, the televangelists like Jimmy Swaggart that, you know, sort of you know, brought you into your faith originally. But yeah. in, in the 80s, when you make that switch to again, so you, you already had your faith, you, you have this meeting with your friend that just further, uh, make, you know, has the band commit to that and then commit to where the band goes as a result of that. Or, or what, what are your thoughts about, again, this paradox about and the likelihood of success, and maybe you didn't care, that a, a music that was starting to be associated with, you know, Satanism and, and the devil could be the platform for your message? Well, because I don't, I'm not a believer or a buyer in the fact that uh, this kind of music is the devil's music. Right. You know, uh, I, I believe again in what the Bible says. You know, Lucifer is a cre- is a creation by the Creator, uh, and actually, when when he walked, there was music. There's 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 scriptures about that, and that's why I think that obviously the devil has his hand in music immensely, uh, but it's not his music. It's God's music. God owns and controls everything, and uh, you know, metal, country, rap whatever kind of music it is. And, uh, you know, I believe 
sadly, metal has gotten branded uh, satanic, right. you know, because a lot of times because of the imagery and everyone seems to have a pentagram, you know, with their logo. And it's just, it's, it's almost kind of comical. It's become funny right. because it, it's so cliche. It's like, dude, really? Can you come up with something better? Really? A pentagram again? How boring. You know? And, and, and the thing is, is God, God created it. So when a band like Striper comes along to prove that and show that, and then we become the laughing stock because there's no other band doing it like Striper, uh, it, it's pretty, pretty crazy. You know? But Striper, the track record, speaks for itself. I mean, there have been a lot of lives changed. Because it's striper, people that were alcoholics, people that were drug addicts, people that were suicidal, uh, broken marriages that have come to know Christ, God through striper, through the band, who have gone on to become success, successful people, hugely successful, uh, pastors of mega churches, marriages healed, you name it. And I've seen and lived that, and it's mind blowing. When I when I experience it on a day to day basis, I hear from people left and right. I I was drug stricken. I saw you guys back in '85, and I was in rehab and this and that. Now I pastor a ten thousand uh, you know uh, member church. It puts it makes the hairs on my arm stand on end. To to your point about uh, you know so many pentagrams etc. You know it's my understanding that uh, folks. I remember hearing hearing an interview even with Ozzy Osbourne who talked about the origins of Black Sabbath were that yeah. you know, his band at that time, which uh, the name eludes me, it was Polka something or other. Um, that they weren't finding the success they wanted. They saw a long line outside of a movie theater for the to see the film Black Sabbath, and they said, "Hey, if this is what people are into, we'll do right. that." And so a lot of these folks were just, you know, you know, going for gimmicks. I think uh, Ray was telling me off air that, uh, um, that uh, what was it, uh, Slayer. Right. But meanwhile, so you've got these folks who are just using the ads as, as a gimmick. You're being genuine. And then you have folks like, like Jimmy Swaggart saying you're actually a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah, well, it's you're always going to have people who are saying that it, the thing that hurt the most is coming from swagger. Cause he's the guy that brought us to Christ. Yep. We were watching television and eventually we all said the sinner's prayer and we just got into a church and that was through and because of Jimmy swagger. So when he was holding up our album saying they're wolves in sheep's clothing and don't go see these guys. And they were protesting our shows with bullhorns. It hurt. Yep. It was a little deeper because it was, it was Jimmy swagger. Someone we looked up to, uh, and then, not long after that, we all, the world got to see uh, what happens to someone that judges a little too much. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah. You, you know, you, you have to proceed with caution when you judge anybody because we're all sinners. Yeah. We all have problems and issues, and, and we found that out with Jimmy Swaggart. Yeah. Uh, the funny thing about Black Sabbath, I refer to them sometimes as the first Christian metal band because, you know, <clears throat> people think they're evil and satanic. But when you read their lyrics, uh, right. most of their lyrics are about God and about, you know, biblical references and whatnot. Mm-hmm. It's crazy to me how they got <laughs> tagged as a, as a satanic band. I think maybe Ozzy just bit a head off a bat one too many times is what happened. But well, yeah, and it's so, which is really comical. If, if he's the uh, poster child for the Prince of Darkness, it's pretty pretty <laughs> funny. It's like wow, okay. Yeah. <laughs> if if he's the Prince of Darkness, then hell's not a scary place. You know, it's like <laughs> it's like wow. Uh, I, I, I'm not. That's that's crazy. But uh, you know, it's it's it's. I wanted to tell you too when you mentioned the book. You guys know. The working title uh, of the book, or what 
it originally was, right? No, no, I don't know. The original working title was from diapers to striper <laughs> and all the all the crap in between. <laughs> Who talked you out of it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I thought that was a brilliant title. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. I think I think you should have gone with that one. <laughs> I do like how the title is, and uh, I don't recall if you meant this, you know, intentionally. You probably did because you're a clever guy. Uh, my life in Striper revealed, you know, not only were you revealing things about your life in Striper, but we learned that so much was revealed to you uh, throughout yeah. your life in Striper. Absolutely. And I just wanted to be open and honest about yeah. that. And, and when I wrote a book, I decided I'm going to be brutally honest, even if some people turn their back on Michael Sweet. Yeah. I'm sure I lost some fans when I wrote that book. Oh, really? I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't gain fans because I think a lot of the, again, you know, you, you pulled back the curtain and a lot of the myth was, you know, sort of fell away. And you get to see an actual genuine person who's, I think, different than, uh, you know, what we probably, th who we thought you were. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. But I mean, I've had people personally come up to me and say, man, I read your book. Not, not a lot of people. But some people yeah. say, I read your book and, and, and it really left a bad impression on me. Hmm. You know, changed my view, changed my view of you, man. Hmm. You know, I've had people tell me that face to face. Yeah. And I was just kind of sitting there like thinking to myself, wow, OK. Uh, and I just wanted to be brutally honest. And I, yeah. something that is a real pet peeve of mine is uh, people that are two faced. Yeah. And I know I, I know people personally that that are. And, uh, and, and that's the choice they make. In other words, they're one thing in private and another thing in public. Sure. I've never understood yeah. that. I remember at the, the beginning of the book, you, you, you almost give a warning that, hey, uh, you know, my honesty gets me in trouble. So FYI, I'm going to be honest. It does. It does get me in trouble. And, you know, uh, in other words, if I'm out at dinner and I'm having uh, an after dinner drink, a bourbon or whatever, and someone comes up to me, which this has happened, and they're a big Striper fan and they're looking down at my drink and they say, oh, uh, you can tell they're thrown off by that. Mm. And and they'll say, I didn't know you drink or whatever. And like, you know, I'll say, yeah, do you want one? <laughs> you you want to sit down yeah. and, and, and have a drink with me? And then they'll go running. <laughs> and, you know, that's what I mean. I don't yeah. do it to push buttons. It's yeah. just I'm not going to sit there and hide the drink and say, oh, no, I don't drink, yeah. uh, which I've witnessed from many people do. Yeah. No. And then when the person leaves, they pull the drink back out again. <laughs> and yeah. I'm just thinking, wow, I don't want to live my life like that. I, I want to be an open book. And I yeah. really try hard to be. I think it's again speaking of oh, speaking of open book. You're literally, you know, you're literally open book in your book. So many things revealed about again that, that things would folks would think about striper or rock stars in general. I mean, including the fact that you know early on when you're still starting to see some success, you're still living at home. Yeah, <laughs> in in bunk beds. In bunk, yes, in bunk beds. I remember when I read that part, I had to skip back and see. Did I miss a part? Are they, was this a flashback? Uh, <laughs> I'll be honest. When I was. When I was like 18, 19 years old, I started looking at the bunk beds, uh, you know, uh, with disregard and thinking, okay, why in the hell are we still in bunk beds? <laughs> and, uh, you know, bringing my girlfriend over to the house. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we're in bunk beds. And uh, by the time I was 23, almost 23, and I moved out, uh, I, I, I ran so fast away from those bunk beds, it wasn't even funny. <laughs> <Can't> <laughs> I couldn't wait to get out of those bunk beds. <laughs> 
So uh, you, you obviously you, you you came up making music in the 1980s, which on our show we consider the greatest decade for pop culture at all. Period. Right. Uh, right. Uh, we we think that there was some great sort of nexus. Look, politically, economically, there were a lot of challenges. You know, we were afraid of being bombed. You know, by nuclear by nuclear weapons from you know foreign nations. A lot of people were being laid off. There was a lot of things that were happening that weren't good, but somehow this culmination right. of all these things birthed a lot of great music and art and films. You're still making music today. Um, Ray was telling yep. me earlier that he thinks your, you know, solo, your recent solo work is some of the best stuff you've ever done. 10 is an amazing album. I would put it as probably my, one of my favorites up against the hell with the devil. I mean, wow. That good. Wow. Well, that's saying a lot, man. Uh, coming from, a striper fan and comparing it to to hell with the devil. Cause the to hell with the devil album is pretty much the, the album that everything is compared to because it was the most successful and most fans favorite. Yeah. It's also the first album most of us bought. Yeah. And, it, and so for you to say something like that, that's pretty powerful and amazing. Uh, but you know, I agree. And I say that humbly. I, I think 10 is a really great album and it does stand up against the hell with the devil. And, but you know, there are those fans that will never give it the light of day because it's just a Michael sweet solo album. Oh, it doesn't have the other three guys. Oh, they weren't involved. Oh, it can't be as good. Yeah. Well, that voice, though, you sound just as good as you did probably all the way back to yellow and black attack. Your voice has not changed at all. It's amazing. Oh man. Well, brother, thank you. It's changed a little bit. The tone's a little different. It's a little grittier. I've lost a little bit of my range because I've reached puberty finally. You know? <laughs> I don't know. The, the, the intro on, uh, on Goddamn Evil, you do that, that scream at the beginning. That's pretty good, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, man, look, I still got a few screams left in me. And, uh, you know, uh, hopefully, hopefully I can keep doing it for a little while longer. We'll see how that goes. How does making music now compare to the 1980s? There's a lot of stuff going on. And, you know, I, I feel almost like I'm busier now because of uh, COVID-19 yep. uh, than I was before COVID-19. Yep. It's really interesting. I think COVID-19 could be the name of a heavy yeah. metal band, maybe. COVID-19 would be a great name for a heavy metal band. And I guarantee you there's already 100 bands <laughs> with that name. I promise you that. With a pentagram. With a pentagram on the cover. In a 19. Very good. You know, Michael, I see we've taken up much of your time. We look forward to seeing what uh, has yet to come from Michael Sweet. Thank you for your time, Michael. Well, hey, I, I appreciate you guys and uh, your words. And I'm thrilled to still be making music and uh, Striper and Solo. Uh, I'm really, really happy with how, obviously, the last two solo albums have turned out. Uh, One-Sided War and Ten. And uh, I think they hold their own, not that it's a contest, it never will be, but they hold their own against anything Striper's ever done, for sure. Mm -hmm. And the new Striper album is going to be amazing. I can't wait for people to hear that. We're wrapping it up. It's going to be coming out this year, probably in September. Uh, the, the release date's actually getting pushed up, uh, which is interesting in the world that we live in right now with right. The delays happening. But we're thrilled and excited and can't wait for people to hear the new album and get back out there and, and tour again. Thanks, man. Thanks, Michael. God bless you guys. So, you know, to be honest, and that is that maybe that's not a pun. It's, you know, Michael's book is named Honestly. And you'll find if you read the book, and I think, you know, having just spoken with him, you'll find him to be a very direct fellow. So I'm going to continue being direct because that's I am too. In speaking with him and reading his book, a lot of what I thought I understood about Michael was dispelled. 
one of the most surprising things I, you know, I had learned and tying this back to our earlier conversation was how they themselves got, you know, pulled into the satanic panic of the 1980s by someone who he admired, even though it was, you know, a, a television relationship, but he admired as someone that brought him to his faith. You know, that was quite a surprising uh, revelation. So we learned all these things, Ray, but I don't know if at all we actually proved anything regarding the 1980s. Well, I think we have proven something. So what is it? Ah, oh yeah. You remembered. Yeah, I remember now. We have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that no other decade has done the satanic panic as well as the 80s. True. True enough. Yeah. Hey, if you're going to if you're going to be scared of something, you know, really terrify everybody about it. And we'll talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya. See ya.